it almost makes me cry to think about it. But what I had to do was separate myself from this group of people that I started out with who really, really believed in saving the feral bees. They believed that feral Africanized bees are the answer to all the problems that we have with bees because they have a stronger immune system. But the price that you pay is that the kids can't play in the backyard. I basically had to say to this group that I went to monthly meetings with, I'm going to start consorting with the devil. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This week, I talked to Ruth Askren and Phoebe Piper, owners of the beekeeping company Hive Tribe. Hive Tribe has established and maintained 25 active beekeeping sites throughout LA and Ventura County, working with a variety of estates and celebrity clients. But before we sat down to talk, Ruth and Phoebe gave me a taste of their sweet lifestyle by letting me don the beekeeping suit myself. On a warm spring day, I headed down to Malibu and visited the pair at their hillside operation. Well, we are on a beautiful four acre property that belongs to a, a family that offered me space to keep bees here when I first got started. There, I helped separate bee boxes to check on different colonies' health and the progress of their hives. I watched through my mesh helmet as they monitored white wax, checked for pollen, and looked at the honey on the outside of the young hives. Yet, before Ruth and Phoebe maintained hives for a living, this was just a hobby for Ruth. And before that, she didn't work with bees at all. But let's dive into this winding uphill journey through SoCal and remember that it's never too late to find wonder in your life. Sometimes a new source of excitement is wedged between the tiles on the roof, waiting to be found. Well, my first experience with bees was when I stepped on a bee in my kitchen. when I was about eight years old, there was a beehive in our roof and we didn't know it. And there were bees getting into the house and I stepped on a bee and it hurt a lot and I cried and and then I got interested in bees. <laughs> You're like, what is this thing causing yeah. me harm? <laughs> and we had this big privet hedge on the side of the house where the bees would just come to the flowers all day. And I did capture them in an upside down jar and I put the lid on the bottom and then I bring it into the kitchen table and sit there and watch it until my mother told me that I had to put them back outside. Why do you think you were so interested in watching like, well, you know, why not like flies or, or was it also flies? Like what was so interesting you think about bees? I was interested in a lot of creatures. I caught lizards. I used to have this fantasy that all the vegetation on the hillside would go away and I would see all the lizards and then I could catch them all. Ant hills. I would dig up the ant hills and try to find the queen. And in the digging up, I would find these like storehouses of food that the ants would collect 
little tiny bits of things and they would just stack them up. Like it was really fascinating. And ants were really the first time that I got interested in this idea of insects that kept their life in a collective. Why do you think you were approaching these collective creatures? Like, why do you think that was interesting to you? Like, why was that collection component something that drew you in? Well, uh, you know, like many children in the world, I wanted to be connected to more than I was connected to. You know, we lived in a suburb and I had friends and I had my school classes and I belonged to the campfire girls and I learned how to sew and make s'mores and camping trips with my family and everything. But I thought that these animals that lived together in these large groups, they could never be lonely. And I think that really appealed to me. Really like that. It's yeah. like, you know, they're all they're all together. They have a common purpose and there's a reason for them being together. Mm-hmm. Were you ever interested in in like the drawing component of like drawing insects? I know, you know, you would eventually go to art, but like what did you when you went into thinking about art, what did you start drawing? I mean, to be honest, no. Drawing insects, it's something that I tinkered with, but I was much more drawn to architectural subjects and landscapes. The part of my history that I didn't tell you yet is that in the 70s, when I decided that I wasn't college material, I decided to become a welder. And I worked high-rise construction with the Iron Workers Union for about five years in the mid-70s until I met my husband. We got married and then we decided to go ahead and start having a family and I couldn't drag a 60 pound welding machine around with me. Couldn't be a worker bee, had to be a queen bee. (laughs) (laughs) Working with these really large structures, I found that I, I was very drawn to architecture and, you know, the way that light and shadow falls on planes. And that was really what interested me. Not so much little, little, little creatures. Yeah. So I want to uh, fast forward a little bit and uh, go to around like 2009 when you were trying to find like a project to do with your, your dad who was aging. Right. So about 2009, my dad was like 80 and having trouble walking, a really intelligent and creative guy, an inventor, but he couldn't find enough to do. How did that come out? Like, how did you like start to realize that? He was sitting around. He was just sitting around and he is not a sitting around kind of guy. I've always been close to my dad. I always identified with him because I also love to tinker with materials. And I thought, okay, we got to find something for him to do. And I just looked around. And one of the things that came up was there was a group near me that was a group of beekeepers that had meetings. And they were close enough that I could get there easily and learn about beekeeping. How did you find out about it? What was your perception? I was fascinated by it. And I think what happened was a swarm landed at my house. Mm. 
and I felt chosen. <laughs> the bees chose me. <laughs> so I Googled, I mean, 2009, we had the internet and I looked for beekeeping near me and I found this group, the Backwards Beekeepers, but it got me thinking, who are these people, the Backwards Beekeepers? Can I join them? What do they do? So I started going to meetings. The first time I went out to collect a, a wild beehive, there were about six or seven of us. We went to a residential backyard where they had a wooden fence and the bees built a hive that was five feet tall, oh my God. six inches deep, and about 10 feet long. How many bees is that? 80,000, oh 100,000, I don't know. It was a lot Huge, of bees. Yeah. And when you're doing this, when you're like actually like in it learning, what are you like saying to yourself or saying to the other people? Like, like, are you thinking super cool? Are you a little nervous? Like, like what is your inner dialogue? Definitely both. Really cool. And some of these bees were very aggressive. The wild bees that we have in Southern California can be really cranky. And they would sting through the gloves. And I remember doing a couple of these removals where I would just look at my gloves and they would be paved with stingers. And I thought, am I having fun? <laughs> so at this point, like you're just doing this to learn. You're not actually getting paid. No, not getting paid. Just learning a whole bunch of different kinds of situations where you have bees and you got to get them out of there. I knew what I was doing. And meantime, the group put together a hotline and they advertised on Google that if you had a beehive and you wanted it removed, call this number and we'll send some people to your house who are only asking for gas money. Also, I was teaching 20 hours a week elementary school art at Notre Dame Academy and when I would take my lunch break, I'd come back and my voicemail would have like 10 messages. Can you come and get this beehive? From the bee hotline. Yeah, from the bee hotline. Oh my God. <laughs> Ruth, this calls for you. The people who ran the bee hotline, they would call me and say that we've got two calls in Santa Monica and one in West LA and one in North of Montana. And I began to see that I was the only one on the West side. All these other beekeepers were in Northeast LA, Pasadena, like Orange County. This was a hole in the market. It was like weird. I was like, why won't anybody help me in West LA? I was feeling kind of sorry for myself because I had too much work to do. I wasn't thinking about creating a company. I was trying to figure out how I could do it safely. And it was at about this time that people started saying to me, I will give you more than gas money if you can get those bees out of my fountain or out of the, you know, tree that they've taken up residence in that my kids pass by every day on their way to school or wherever they were in the wall in a column like that. Can you figure out how to get them out of there? And I would be like, yeah. So I'm still thinking this is a great way to keep my dad busy. He always has plenty to do. He's making like, he's solving problems for me. He helped me build a vacuum that you can regulate the suction so you can suck the bees out of an enclosed area that you can't get all the way into. 
he had great fun with that. It's like you and your dad are very much doing this together. He's like painting the bee boxes. He's coming up with new prototypes, I guess, for for bee work. Exactly. Little by little, I started finding that all those voicemails that were collecting during my lunch hour, I started to feel a lot of pressure from it. And it wasn't so fun. We're having all this opportunity. And sometimes it's like, for like some entrepreneurs, like the opportunity you need to like create. And then some, it just comes to you and overwhelms you so much that you're like, okay, I just have to level up to match this opportunity that I'm getting. And so what was your, your first steps to level up? Well, my brother is a startup guru. He started the first web development company in New Zealand. And I called him and I said, Dave, I think I'm a company. And he said, well, what do you need to have in order to actually be a company? And I said, well, first of all, I need to not have this other job, but I don't want to get rid of it. I love teaching little kids and I love doing art and it's great. And he just kind of helped me think through this, you know, the push and the pull of it. And he said to me, well, if you're going to keep doing bee removals, even if you don't stop teaching, you got to have a truck. <laughs> the Toyota Camry's not going to cut it. No, get yourself a truck. Come on. I was like, oh, I'm counting the money. Oh, it's so much money. Oh, my God. I can't afford a truck. So I scraped up all the money that I could. I got the discount. And that was 2012. I bought a brand new truck. <laughs> this truck is still the same truck that I use. It is 100% analog. There is not one computer chip in it because I was trying to save money. And actually, I really like it. So that was the first big step. How does that truck enable you to get more clients or take it more seriously in your eyes? When I bought the truck was almost immediately, I realized that I couldn't do both. That's a, I feel like that's a tough realization to come to because it's like, it's not like you hated your job. It was something that was fulfilling. I didn't hate it, but I felt like I was starting to be over it. The bee rescue was pretty exciting. Cutting through people's floors and taking their sheds apart and all this stuff. And so that was the next thing that happened was I said to my brother, I am drowning in work. I'm the only person on the West side doing removals. What should I do? And he said, raise your price. The easiest way to get fewer clients and not lose money is to raise your price. And some people are going to look at the price and they're going to say, are you kidding me? And other people are going to look at the price and they'll say, please, whatever it takes. And when I raised my price, I also realized that I didn't really need that teaching job anymore. How do you remember like the conversation of quitting? They had this sweet, loving person as the headmaster of the school. And she became very elderly and it was time for her to retire. I just didn't relate as well to the next person who came in. And since I was an artist, I had an easy out. (laughs) And they were like, oh yeah, there she goes doing something else again. And so they appreciated me, but they knew they had to let me go. You freed yourself from your your other job and you're ready to just fully focus in. What did building it look like over the next few years? People who called someone to do a humane bee removal were people who loved and respected honeybees. Right away, 
from the very start, I got asked, can you take the bees out of that column, but put them over there on the other side of the yard in bee boxes so we can get the honey? In the beginning, I wasn't that confident in my beekeeping skills. I knew how to do removals and I had a few hives of my own. It was a big jump to keep bees for somebody else. And little by little, um, I said yes. And I think the first person that I said yes to, I offered to do it for $250 a year. Is that a little? <laughs> it's very little. Yeah. I didn't have a contract. I didn't, I didn't know really, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I just was like following my nose because of where I started as a beekeeper. I started out with this kind of haphazard, crazy, wild, feral bees. And some of them were really not very nice. My heart was in my throat half the time because some of these bees were just so cranky. And I wasn't quite sure how to cope with that. And that was going to be the next big pivot. What was the pivot to get towards that kind of chilled out bee? It almost makes me cry to think about it. But what I had to do was separate myself from this group of people that I started out with who really, really believed in saving the feral bees. They believed that feral Africanized bees are the answer to all the problems that we have with bees because they have a stronger immune system. And it's true. In a lot of ways, the feral bees are hardier. They're survivors. But the price that you pay is that the kids can't play in the backyard. I basically had to say to this group that I went to monthly meetings with, I'm going to start consorting with the devil. The Italian bees? <laughs> they called those bees the poodle bees. You know, you have to give them immunizations and you have to take them to the dentist and then they want to have their hair done. So much more high maintenance. Yeah. I could see that many people wanted to have docile bees in their yard so they could have bees pollinate their little fruit trees in their garden and also be able to let their children play outside. What did the, the scale up look like for you? The first thing I did was I joined the LA County Beekeepers Association. It's the oldest bee club west of the Mississippi, started in about 1880. And I started hobnobbing with commercial beekeepers so I could see how it was done. And they were very friendly to me. And the idea of not having all those backwards beekeepers as my friends anymore really was painful to me. To do this thing that I was doing and do it safely, I was going to have to stop doing what they were doing. So I was able to maintain a few of those friendships, even though we keep bees in different ways. And to this day, I still do have some of those people as my friends, even though we do things a little differently. It's like different religions, you know, you can still be friends. And so when did you realize you needed a little bit of help? I was not making enough money to like cover my expenses. At some point, I made a phone call to a realtor in Malibu and I said, I'm a beekeeper. I can help you if you have a property that maybe nobody lives on. I will be the watcher of that property and I'll visit it every 10 days if you let me keep bees on there. 
I don't remember what realty it was, but he said to me, I'm going to get back to you because I think I know somebody who does. And it was shortly after that, that I got my first celebrity call. Flea, he was one of the very first and he never made me sign an NDA. Flea? The Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, wow. That flea. (laughs) Yeah. I'm working really hard, but starting to feel like, okay, it's really worth it. I'm making money. I'm saving money, money that I can travel with. I can buy stuff. We can pay off our kitchen remodel that we did a few years ago. You know, there wasn't like one event. It was just basically exhaustion. I felt that I couldn't raise my prices anymore. I really felt like, okay, this is really what the market will bear. I was all over the place. And that was another thing that made me realize that, God, it would be great if I could have somebody covered this area so I didn't have to go like from Thousand Oaks over the hill to Malibu and then all the way down to West LA over to the Miracle Mile. It was just too many places. Maybe actually, do you want to jump in? Because I would love to hear like what it was like for you joining this operation. Yeah, I mean, so this was, like Ruth said, this was in 2018, somewhere around there. And I had just moved back to California after doing a bunch of outdoor jobs, working with animals in different places. And I moved back here primarily to be with my family and was hoping to find something along those lines and happened to see a post on Indeed. Seemed like the perfect option for me to be able to stay here and be around my family and still have that experience working outdoors, working with animals, learning about this new animal that I had never worked with before. So yeah, I mean, that's that's how I got started. That's my end of it. What was it actually like getting into the hives? That's a great question. I don't quite know what my expectations were going into it. In a lot of ways, it did completely live up to what I was hoping for in terms of just being outside, working in these incredible environments that we're in. We come to a place like this where it's just absolutely this this gorgeous How can you not love working here? Exactly. And then from here, you know, we'll go up into the Santa Monica Mountains on a dirt road and it's just a totally different environment. So we're, you know, all over Los Angeles working in just completely different places. Passing it back to Ruth, when are you thinking like you want to take a step back? So... In the very beginning, when Phoebe started working for me, I felt like I had been thrown a lifeline and I was just about drowning. I had everything on paper. All my notes about the hives were on paper. (laughs) And I gave her a notebook and she looked at it and she was like, I'm going to help you with this. (laughs) And Phoebe basically, with her boyfriend, they single-handedly digitized all of my records and it was like a new lease on life. I mean, it was a completely different way of operating to scale. But I also remember the early days when it was very important one time or another time that we find the queen. We had to find the queen in this hive. And Phoebe, who's like quite a bit younger than I and has really good eyesight, in the very beginning, guess what? It was hard to find the queen. And she would be so frustrated and I knew in that moment that she was going to make an excellent beekeeper because she cared so much about being able to do every aspect of the job 
And in fact, she can find the queen faster than anybody I know now. Watching her develop allowed me to kind of take a deep breath and sit back. And occasionally I would give her work to do so that I could be off for a few hours or a day or a week. And that was when I really started to feel like I not only need some extra time, I could actually have extra time because I'm not the only person who can run this show. And in the beginning, when I first hired her, I did feel like I was the only person who could do it. And so when did you start really like passing off the reins and what did that conversation look like? So I talked to my brother a lot. He said, Ruthie, you've got a great business here. You're going to have all kinds of buyers. You should market it around. Find out who wants to buy it. Sell to the highest bidder. Come on. And so I put the word out, the people I knew, and I got really good feedback. I didn't approach Phoebe right away because I thought of her as the person who would make it possible to have somebody else run it because she would be able to do the boots on the ground work. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but she knows I told her this. I also thought that she was young. And yet in the back of my mind, from the very first day I hired her, I was like, she could do this. This is a person who built dog houses for the Iditarod, for Iditarod type races, hung them on a sling from a helicopter so they could be like transferred to another place. All this stuff that she did, I thought, this person could basically do anything. And when I started getting a feeling that the person who I wanted to sell the business to was like giving me the runaround, I started thinking like, why have I not approached Phoebe? Why not? Because one of the things that I always related to about Phoebe was that I felt like she was always 100% honest and genuine with me. And so it was at that point where I felt like, okay, they're, they're playing games with me now. I'm trying to get the price lower and make it longer to pay and all these different things. And I just kind of casually said to Phoebe, you know, I'm going to sell the business. And she was like, what? I wanted the business. <laughs> I thought that was going to be me. And I said, okay, great. Let's talk about it. And I just did a full swing in the other direction away from these other people who were giving me a hard time. And right away, I mean, I saw that th this was going to work out really well. And I did feel so much better about selling the business to this person who had been completely engaged in it and enveloped in it and grew with it and helped it grow, that it just seemed like absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, when she first brought it up, you know, like I said, I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I had been thinking, I feel like I could do this forever, at least for a very long time. And I kind of assumed that Ruth would be with me for quite a while. <laughs> kind of assumed maybe she could do it forever, too. So, yeah, when she brought it up, I think initially I didn't really think that it would be feasible to actually take it over. But it still had been something that, like, I considered way down the line doing. And, yeah, I mean, we just, uh, like she said, she brought it up to me and I expressed to her that, like, 
it was something I could be interested in. I just didn't know if I could do it. And I had never run a business before. And, you know, that's an entirely different thing than, than beekeeping or building dog houses or, <laughs> or anything else that I had done. But, you know, having Ruth there to help me through the transition process and help me after she sold the business and continue to be here for, like she said, anything that comes up that's out of the ordinary or anything that comes up that, that is ordinary, but that just that I haven't experienced yet has pretty much been the only way that I could actually make this happen. So where is the business today? So it's still largely the same as it was when Ruth was running it. You know, it's still based around the same idea of keeping bees at people's houses. We've grown a little bit. We've got a few more clients now. I've hired somebody else on because like Ruth said, and like I've learned as a business owner, it's kind of impossible to do this and run the business and also do all of the work at the same time. You know, I don't think I realized how much work that was going to be <laughs> yeah. and how much you really do need help. So I've hired somebody else now. We have another employee who has been with the company since Ruth owned it. We're moving more in the direction of trying to keep better track of, of not that we kept bad track of our records before, but just looking more at the data of our hives and seeing which hives produce honey at which times of year and how much the precipitation that we get over the year affects that honey production. So it's been really fun to, to look at it from that angle and to have all of that data and be able to put it into this, this system and see what happens. Wrapping up, what do you think your advice would be to people who are maybe interested in getting into beekeeping or even starting a business uh, in general? Like, what do you think your advice would be to those people? Well, those are two really different yeah. <laughs> uh, endeavors. I'm very involved in teaching beekeeping still. I go to the Beekeeping 101 class every month that the LA County Beekeepers Association runs along with Phoebe. The main advice to new beekeepers, I think, is to just try to gather as much solid information as you can. YouTube videos are great, but beekeeping is such an old craft that there's a lot of old information that if you try to figure out how to do it all over again, you're like reinventing the wheel. <laughs> yeah. So learn from people who have been doing it for a while, read books, get the American Bee Journal, and basically just try to educate yourself in the solidest way that you can. And then on the business side, what advice do you think you would give? So on the business side, I really have to thank my brother for reminding me that there is this thing called the market. And if you have a product that people want and they really want it, they will actually pay you for that product. And if they won't pay you for it, then you may not have a product that's really worth trying to market. It seems like so simple. But when he said to me, you're working too hard, you need to raise your prices. At first, it didn't make sense to me. And then I also thought, oh, that's just mean. Raise my prices, then nobody will want what I'm selling. But that's not what happened. And if you were to say in a couple sentences, like what you love most about this, what do you think that would be? Oh, uh, 
There are a few things that I love very much about this. One is obviously I love the bees. They're a wonderful creature to observe and they are inspiring. Like Ruth said, there's there's a lot. I love that I feel like I'm constantly learning about them even after doing this for years. I'm still constantly learning more and more about bees and beekeeping. And I also love sharing it with people. And I think this business model is a really good way to get to do that. You know, you you really develop intimate relationships with your clients and get to share this experience of either, you know, going into the hives with them or just having the hives on their properties and just really share that love of bees. Yeah. And I, I think it's something that's like very unifying. Like well, what, what we were talking to one of the other beekeepers about is like, he'll go across the country and if people see that he's working with bees, everyone's asking like, how are the bees? There's this insect that we've just all very much grown to love and care for and view as important. And I'm very thankful that you guys are uh, introduced us into your world and uh, let us be a part of it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lee. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCollum, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.